Hello, I'm Wyatt Butler, and welcome to the Crimecast. On this episode, I will be going into the murderous minds of the toolbox killers who murdered five teenage girls over a period of five months in 1979. In this podcast, I'll be going into the background of the murders and stories from across the internet. If at any point you need to click off or skip, I completely understand. This is very graphic. Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris, also known as the Toolbox Killers, are American serial killers and rapists who kidnapped, raped, and tortured and killed five teenage girls in Southern California over a period of five months in 1979. In 1978, Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris met while in the California State Prison at San Luis Obispo. Norris was a mentally disordered sex offender and previously spent four years at a state mental institution. Once released, he raped again and returned to prison. Bittaker spent most of his adult life behind bars for various offenses. As their friendship grew, so did their fantasies of raping and murdering teenage girls. After their release from prison, they paired up and transformed Bittaker's 1977 GMC van into what they nicknamed Murder Mac and began their kidnap, torture, and killing spree of young girls. Lawrence Sigmund Bittaker was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on September 27, 1940 as the unwanted child of a couple who had chosen to not have children. Bittaker was placed in an orphanage by his biological mother and was adopted by Mr. and Mrs. Bittaker as an infant. Bittaker was first arrested for shoplifting at the age of 12 and obtained a minor criminal record over the next four years after further arrests for the same offense in addition to petty theft, which brought him to the attention of juvenile authorities. Bittaker would later claim these numerous theft-related offenses committed throughout his adolescence had been attempts to compensate for the lack of love he had received from his parents. Bittaker considered school to be a tedious experience and dropped out of high school in 1957. By this stage in his adolescence, he and his adoptive parents were living in California. Within a year of dropping out, he had been arrested for car theft, a hit and run, and evading arrest. For these offenses, he was imprisoned at the California Youth Authority, where he remained until he was 18 years old. Roy Lewis Norris was born in Greeley, Colorado on February 5, 1948. Norris was conceived out of wedlock. His parents had married to avoid the social stigma surrounding illegitimate birth at the time. He occasionally lived with his parents throughout his childhood and adolescence, but was repeatedly placed in the care of foster families throughout the state of Colorado. Roy claims that he was sexually abused when in the care of a Hispanic family, later stating the prejudice he holds towards Hispanic people originates from the neglect and abuse he endured as a child when placed in their care. While living with his birth parents at the age of 16, Norris visited the home of a female relative who was in her early 20s and began speaking to her in a sexually suggestive manner. She ordered him to leave her house and informed Norris's father who threatened to subject him to a beating. Norris subsequently stole his father's car and drove into the Rocky Mountains where he attempted to commit suicide by injecting pure air into an artery in his arm. He was later apprehended as a runaway and returned to live with his parents. A year later, Norris dropped out of school and joined the United States Navy. He was stationed in San Diego in 1965 and was deployed to Vietnam in 1969, although he did not see active combat during his four-month tour of duty. While stationed in Vietnam, he experienced with heroin and marijuana, becoming a regular user of the latter. He was honorably discharged from the Navy after one tour of duty. 
Within days of his parole from the California Youth Authority, Bitteker was arrested for transporting a stolen vehicle across state lines. In August 1959, Bitteker was sentenced to 18 months imprisonment to be served in the Oklahoma State Reformatory. He was later transferred to the Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri to serve the remainder of his sentence. In 1960, Bitteker was released from prison and soon reverted to crime. Within months of his release, he had been arrested in Los Angeles for robbery and in May 1961 was sentenced to 15 years imprisonment. While incarcerated for his robbery, he was diagnosed by a psychiatrist as being highly manipulative. The psychiatrist also described Bitteker as having considerable concealed hostility. Bitteker was released on parole in 1963 after completing two years of his sentence. In October 1964, he was again imprisoned for parole violation. In 1966, Bitteker underwent further examinations by two independent psychiatrists, both of whom classified him as a borderline psychopath, a highly manipulative individual unable to acknowledge the consequences of his actions. Bitteker explained to one of them that his criminal activities gave him a feeling of self-importance, although he insisted circumstantial matters pertaining to his environment and upbringing decreased his ability to resist committing crimes. Bitteker was prescribed antipsychotic medication. A year later, he was again released into society. A month after his parole in July 1967, Bitteker was again arrested and convicted of theft and of leaving the scene of an accident. He was sentenced to five years but was released in April 1970. In March 1971, Bitteker was again released for burglary. Due to repeated parole violations, he was sentenced to six months to 15 years imprisonment in October 1971. Three years later, Bitteker was again released from prison. In 1974, Bitteker was arrested for assault with attempt to commit murder after he stabbed a young supermarket employee who had accused him of stealing. The supermarket employee had observed Bitteker stealing a steak and had followed Bitteker outside and into the store's parking lot, where he calmly asked Bitteker whether he had forgotten to pay. Bitteker responded by stabbing his pursuer in the chest, narrowly missing his heart. He attempted to flee but was quickly restrained by two other supermarket employees. The employee Gary Louie survived the stabbing and Bitteker was convicted of the lesser charge of assault with a deadly weapon and sent to California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo. In November 1969, Roy Norris was arrested for his first known sexual offenses. He was charged with both rape and assault with attempt to commit rape. Three months later, in February 1970, Norris attempted to deceive a lone woman into allowing him to enter her home. When the woman refused, he attempted to break into her house. The woman phoned the police, who arrested Norris before he had the opportunity to cause the woman any harm. Less than three months after this offense, Norris was diagnosed by a military psychologist with a severe schizoid personality. He was given an administrative discharge from the Navy under terms labeled as psychological problems. In May 1970, Norris, on bail for his latest offense, attacked a female student whom he had been stalking on the grounds of the San Diego State University campus. Norris repeatedly struck her on the back of the head with a rock until she slumped to her knees before he repeatedly beat her head against the sidewalk as he knelt upon her lower back. Shortly thereafter, Norris was charged with assault with a deadly weapon. He was committed to a total of five years imprisonment at the Atascadero State Hospital, where he was classified as a mentally disordered sex offender. 
Norris was released from the hospital in 1975 with five years probation, having been declared by doctors as an individual who was of no further danger to others. Just three months after his release, Norris approached a 27-year-old woman walking home from a restaurant in Redondo Beach and offered her a ride on his motorcycle. When she declined, Norris parked his motorcycle and grabbed the woman's scarf, twisting it around her neck before informing her he intended to rape her and dragging her into nearby bushes. Fearing for her life, the woman did not resist the rape. Although the rape was reported to police, they were initially unable to find the perpetrator. However, one month later, the victim observed Norris's motorcycle and noted the license plate, which she immediately gave to police. Norris was arrested for the rape. One year later, he was tried and convicted for this offense and was sent to the California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo. While incarcerated at the California Men's Colony, Norris met and befriended Lawrence Bittaker. From February to June 1979, Bittaker and Norris picked up over 20 female hitchhikers. The pair did not assault these girls in any manner. These were just practice runs and were merely a way for them to develop ruses to lure girls into a van voluntarily and of discovering secluded locations. In late April, the pair discovered a secluded fire road located in the San Gabriel Mountains. Bittaker broke the locked gate to this fire road with a crowbar and replaced the lock with one he owned. Bittaker and Norris killed their first victim, 16-year-old Lucinda Lynn Schaefer, on June 24th of 1979. Schaefer was last seen leaving a Presbyterian church meeting in Redondo Beach. In his written accounts of the events of this day, Bittaker stated he and Norris first finished constructing the bed the pair had installed in the rear of the van beneath which they placed tools, clothes, and a cooler filled with beers and soft drinks. At approximately 11 a.m., the pair drove to the beach area drinking beer, smoking grass, and flirting with girls. We had no set routine. At approximately 7.46 p.m., Norris spotted Schaefer walking down a side street and remarked to Bittaker, there's a cute little blonde. After unsuccessfully attempting to entice Schaefer into their van with alternative offers of marijuana and a lift home, Bittaker and Norris drove further ahead and parked alongside a driveway. Norris then exited the vehicle, opened the passenger side sliding door, and leaned into the van with his head and shoulders obscured from view behind the door. When Lucinda Schaefer passed the van, Norris exchanged a few words with her before dragging her into the van and closing the door. Using a ruse they would repeat in most of their subsequent murders, Bittaker turned the radio to full volume as Norris bound the victim's arms and legs and gagged her with duct tape as Bittaker drove Schaefer to the fire road in the San Gabriel Mountains where in April the pair had previously switched the locks. Despite initially screaming when she was abducted, Lucinda Schaefer quickly regained her composure. In his written account of the night that followed, Bittaker wrote that Lucinda Schaefer displayed a magnificent state of self-control and composed acceptance of the conditions of which she had no control. She shed no tears, offered no resistance, and expressed no great concern for her safety. I guess she knew what was coming. At the fire road, Norris first raped Schaefer after instructing Bittaker to go take a walk and return in one hour. Upon returning to the van, Bittaker now started to rape the girl in Norris's absence. Upon the second occasion in which she was raped by Norris in Bittaker's absence, Schaefer asked him whether they intended to kill her, to which Norris replied no. In response, Schaefer requested to be allowed time to pray before she was killed if that was Bittaker and Norris's intention. 
In their subsequent accounts of the actual murder, Bideker and Norris have given differing accounts as to who argued over whether they should kill her rather than release her. Each stated the other argued that they should kill her. In any event, Schaefer pleaded for only a second to pray, before Norris attempted to strangle her. After approximately 45 seconds, he became disturbed at the look in her eyes and ran to the front of the van vomiting. Bideker then strangled Schaefer until she collapsed to the ground and began convulsing. He then twisted a wire coat hanger around her neck with vice grip pliers until Schaefer's convulsions ceased. Lucinda Schaefer was denied her requests to pray before Bideker and Norris killed her. Lucinda Schaefer's body was wrapped in a plastic shower curtain and thrown over a steep canyon Bideker had selected. According to Norris, after Bideker had thrown Schaefer over the canyon, Bideker assured him the animals would eat her up so there would be no evidence left. On July 8th of 1979, two weeks after the murder of Lucinda Schaefer, Bideker and Norris encountered 18-year-old Andrea Joy Hall hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway. As the pair slowed the van to offer Hall a lift, another vehicle pulled over and offered Hall exactly that, which she accepted. Bideker and Norris followed the vehicle from a distance until Hall exited the vehicle in Redondo Beach. On this occasion, Norris hid in the back of the van in order to dupe Hall into thinking Bideker was alone. Inside the van, Bideker offered Hall a soft drink from the cooler located in the rear of the van. Norris pounced on her when she went to retrieve it, and after a strenuous fight, managed to subdue Hall by twisting her arm behind her back, causing her to scream in pain. Norris then gagged Hall with adhesive tape and bound her wrists and ankles. Bideker and Norris drove Hall to a location in the San Gabriel Mountains beyond where they had taken Lucinda Schaefer. At this location, she was raped twice by Bideker and once by Norris. While Bideker was raping Hall for the second time, Norris saw what he believed to be vehicle headlights approaching. Bideker put his hand over Hall's mouth and dragged her into nearby bushes as Norris drove in an unsuccessful search of the vehicle he thought he had seen. When he returned, the pair then drove to a location farther in the San Gabriel Mountains. Bideker forced Hall to walk uphill naked alongside the road and to then perform oral sex on him before ordering Hall to pose for several Polaroid pictures. Bideker and Norris drove Hall to a third location where Bideker again walked Hall up a nearby hill, this time as Norris drove to a nearby store to purchase alcohol. When Norris returned, Bideker was alone and in possession of two further Polaroid pictures he had taken, both of which depicted Hall's face in expressions Norris later described as being of sheer terror as she begged for her life to be spared. Bideker informed Norris that he had told Hall he was going to kill her and challenged her to give him as many reasons as she could come up with as to why she should be allowed to live, before thrusting an ice pack through her ear into her brain. He then turned her body over and thrust the ice pick into her other ear, stomping on it until the handle broke. Bideker then strangled her before throwing her body off a cliff. On September 3rd, Bideker and Norris observed two girls named Jackie Doris Gilliam and Jacqueline Leah Lamp sitting on a bus stop bench close to Hermosa Beach. Lamp and Gilliam had been hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway before Bideker and Norris observed them as they were resting at a bus stop. Bideker and Norris offered the girls a ride, which Gilliam and Lamp accepted. Inside the van, both girls were offered marijuana by Norris, which they then also accepted. Shortly after entering the van, both girls realized that Bideker had steered the van off the Pacific Coast Highway and was driving in the direction of the San Gabriel Mountains. When the girls protested, 
Both Bitteker and Norris attempted to allay the girl's concerns with excuses, which did not deceive either girl. Lamp, age 13, attempted to open the sliding door, whereupon Norris hit her on the back of the head with a bag filled with lead weights, briefly knocking her unconscious, before overpowering 15-year-old Jackie Gilliam. As he began to bind and gag Gilliam, Jacqueline Lamp regained consciousness and again attempted to flee the van, whereupon Norris twisted her arm behind her back and dragged her back into the van. As this struggle ensued, Bitteker, noting the girl's struggle was in full view of potential witnesses, stopped the van, punched Gilliam in the face, and assisted Norris in finishing, binding, and gagging the two girls. Gilliam and Lamp were driven to the San Gabriel Mountains where they were held captive for almost two days, being bound and gagged between repeated instances of sexual and physical abuse. Both men slept in the van alongside their two hostages, with each acting as a lookout. On one occasion, Bitteker walked Lamp onto a nearby hill and forced her to pose for pornographic pictures before returning her to the van. Bitteker also asked Norris to take several Polaroid pictures of himself and Gilliam, both nude and clothed. In the first of three instances in which Bitteker raped Gilliam, he also created a tape recording of himself raping her, forcing the girl to pretend she was his cousin and informing Gilliam to feel free to express her pain. Bitteker later claimed he buried the tape in a cemetery. The tape recording of Gilliam's rape was never found. Bitteker is also known to have tortured Gilliam by stabbing her breasts with an ice pick and using vice grip pliers to tear off part of one of her nipples. After almost two days of captivity, Lamp and Gilliam were murdered. At Bitteker's subsequent trial, Norris claimed he had suggested that Gilliam be killed quickly, as unlike Lamp, she had been largely cooperative throughout the period of her captivity. Whereupon Bitteker replied, no, they only die once anyway. Gilliam was struck in each ear with an ice pick, then strangled to death. After Bitteker had murdered Gilliam, he then forced Lamp out of the van. Upon exiting the sliding door, Bitteker shouted to her, You wanted to stay a virgin, now you can die a virgin, before Norris struck her upon the head with a sledgehammer. Bitteker then strangled Lamp until he believed she had died. When Lamp opened her eyes, Norris again bludgeoned her repeatedly as Bitteker strangled her to death. The bodies of Gilliam and Lamp were thrown over an embankment into the chaparral. Bitteker and Norris abducted their final victim, 16-year-old Shirley Linnett Ledford, on October 31, 1979. Ledford was abducted as she stood outside of a gas station hitchhiking home from a Halloween party in the Sunland Tajunga suburb of Los Angeles. Investigators believe Ledford accepted a ride home from Bitteker and Norris because she recognized Bitteker as he is known to have frequented the restaurant in which Ledford held a part-time job as a waitress. Upon accepting the offer of a lift home and entering the van, Ledford was offered marijuana by Norris. She refused. Bitteker drove the van to a secluded street where Norris drew a knife, then bound and gagged Ledford with construction tape. Bitteker then traded places with Norris who drove in an aimless manner for an hour as Bitteker remained with Ledford in the back of the van. After removing the construction tape from the girl's mouth and legs, Bitteker tormented Ledford, initially slapping and mocking her, then beating her with his fists as he repeatedly shouted for her to say something. Then as Shirley Ledford began screaming, he began shouting for her to scream louder. As Shirley Ledford began to cry, she pleaded with Bitteker, saying, No, don't touch me. In response, Bitteker again ordered her to scream as loud as she wished. 
then began alternately striking her with a hammer, beating her breast with his fists, and torturing her with pliers both between and throughout instances when he raped and sodomized her. Norris later described hearing screams emanating from the rear of the van as he drove. Shortly after Norris switched places with Bideker, he himself switched on the tape recorder which Bideker had used to record much of the time he had been in the rear of the van with Ledford. Norris first shouted for Ledford to go ahead and scream or I'll make you scream. In response, Ledford pleaded, I'll scream if you stop hitting me, then emitted several high-pitched screams as Norris encouraged her to continue until he ordered her to stop. Norris then reached for the sledgehammer as Shirley Ledford, seeing him do this, screamed, Oh no. Norris then struck Ledford once upon the left elbow. In response, she informed Norris he had broken her elbow before pleading, Don't hit me again. In response, Norris again raised the sledgehammer as Ledford repeatedly screamed. Norris then proceeded to strike Ledford 25 consecutive times upon the same elbow with the sledgehammer before asking her, What are you sniveling about? as Ledford continuously screamed and wept. After approximately two hours of captivity, Norris killed Ledford by strangling her with a wire coat hanger, which he tightened with pliers. Ledford did not react much to the act of the strangulation, although she died with her eyes open. Bideker then opted to discard her body on a random lawn in order to view the reaction from the press. The pair drove to a randomly selected house in Sunland, and discarded Ledford's body in a bed of ivy upon the front lawn. Shirley Ledford's body was found by a jogger the following morning. An autopsy revealed that in addition to having been sexually violated, she had died of strangulation after receiving extensive blunt force trauma to the face, head, breasts, and left elbow, with her olecranon sustaining multiple fractures. Her genitalia and rectum had been torn, caused in part by Bideker having inserted pliers inside her body. In addition, her left hand bore a puncture wound and a finger on her right hand had been slashed. Bideker would later claim the tape recording the pair had created of Shirley Ledford's clear abuse and torture offered nothing other than the evidence of a threesome, adding that towards the very end, Shirley Ledford was screaming for him and Norris to kill her. In November of 1979, Roy Norris became reacquainted with a friend named Joseph Jackson, an individual with whom he had previously been incarcerated at the California men's colony. Norris confided in this individual as to his and Bideker's exploits over the previous five months, including graphic details of the murder of Shirley Ledford, the only victim whose body had been found at this time. Jackson consulted his attorney, who advised him to inform authorities. A Redondo Beach detective named Paul Bynum was assigned to investigate Jackson's claims as to Norris's confessions of the murders, attempted abductions, and rapes which he had confided to Jackson had occurred between June and October. In the end, Lawrence Bideker was sentenced to death and is still incarcerated on death row at San Quentin State Prison as of 2019. Roy Norris, as of 2019, still remains incarcerated at Donovan State Prison. He became eligible for parole in 2009, but didn't show up to his parole hearing. The audio recording of the torture of Shirley Ledford has never been released to the public. It stays with the FBI to train new agents. There is a transcript of the recording online, but beware if you do decide to read it, because it is absolutely horrid. I'm sorry that the podcast just sort of stops out of nowhere. The rest of the recording has been deleted 
for some odd reason and I can't get the audio footage, so I'm going to have to settle with this. I'm sorry. Thank you for listening to this podcast. On the next episode of the Crimecast, I will be going into the strange disappearance of Melanie Etzier, who went missing on September 29th of 1996 from the small town of New Liskert, Ontario. You can find this podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast streaming websites. Consider subscribing if you do find it enjoyable. I'm Wyatt Butler, and I will catch you on the next episode of The Crimecast.